Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Short Stacks, our shorter conversations with authors about their process and their books. I'm Tracy Thomas, and our guest today is professor, author, and podcast host, Tressie McMillan-Cottom. Her latest book, Thick and other essays has just been long listed for the National Book Award in Nonfiction for 2019. And Tressie joins us to discuss this phenomenal collection of essays and a whole lot more. Everything we talk about on today's episode can be found in the show notes. Use that link to shop for the books we've discussed and read the articles we mention. Plus, you'll find our social media accounts in the show notes, and it will help you stay connected to the stacks. If you love this show and want more of the stacks, check out our Patreon page. You can support the work we're doing and earn perks for yourself like our virtual book club. So head over to patreon.com slash the stacks. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts, especially through Apple Podcasts. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with Tressie McMillan-Cottom. All right, you guys, I am here today with Tressie McMillan-Cottom. Tressie, thank you so much for joining the Stacks. Well, thank you very much for having me. We're so excited. Your book, Thick, came out earlier this year, but we're going to talk a bunch about it now because it is an amazing book. So just diving in, kind of, can you tell us in about 30 seconds or so what your book's about? The book's basic premise is that uh, Black women have a political and moral philosophy and that we're all better for it when we listen and respect it. Yeah. Amazing. Um, So you kind of, it's a collection of essays and you're writing about things from maternal mortality, Black maternal mortality to women, Black women and beauty and op-eds in major publications, which is an essay that I really loved, especially given what's been going on recently at the New York Times. (laughs) If we wait a couple of weeks, the New York Times is always right on time with that. Yeah. The one thing about (laughs) that essay uh, is that it is always timely. I just give it a couple of weeks, there's a whole other cycle of these things. Exactly. Exactly. So how were you thinking about this collection, like putting it all together? What were you thinking? What was your through line like to connect these different aspects of Black life? Yeah, it is uh, interesting. So my my first book had been about like for-profit colleges and higher education and inequality. Um, and that is still what I do as a professor and as a researcher. Uh, and so when we started talking about doing this book, the very first thing 
that happened is that I have a black woman as an editor. Okay. Uh, Amazing. So, yeah, I know, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's actually quite rare. Yeah. I, I'm not sure people get how few editors are black women, especially black women editors who have sort of green lighting power, you know? Was and, she your editor for your first book as well? That's right. Okay. Yeah. And so Tara comes back to me uh, after Lower Ed and it had done well and it had done these things and all of that. It did what it, it did what I needed it to do for me, right? Okay. And all that. Um, and she said, well, you know, uh, I think that your audience is still, you know, kind of wanting something that puts together, as you described it, a through line of my thinking, et cetera. And I thought she was insane. <laughs> I thought, <laughs> one, I could not imagine that that was true. I still struggle with imagining that's true. But when she, the way she got me was she said, listen, you've been writing for a very long time, which is true. I've been writing for a public at that point for like 10 years in some right. capacity. Um, and I think there was still to some audiences uh, a little lack of clarity about how all the various pieces of the things I talk about go together. Mm. For me, it all made sense. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I think I have like one research question, which right. is what's going on with Black women? And like, what do we learn if we start there? And you can study every aspect of the political economy, the entire, I believe, the entire geopolitical global economy and culture and society can be understood through how Black women experience it. That's how we think about everything when we, we just tend to center white men, white right. Western men, um, but you could center another group of people and have what I argue is a more nuanced understanding of how the world works. And so the collection of essays, Tarrant promised me, she was like, oh, it's going to be fine. You're just going to put together some of your previously published work and it's going to be so low key. And she <laughs> totally lied. She totally <laughs> lied. Um, because what I realized as I started putting it together is that I couldn't just republish uh, previous uh, pieces because my thinking had, had changed. Developed. That's right. If you're living life right, you shouldn't think the same thing, right. uh, you know, at 30 as you did at 20, at 40 as you did at 30. Um, and so I had the same sort of set of questions, but felt like I had more and deeper and better tools to address them. Um, and so what started out was me going, okay, what are the things that I think if people had just paid attention to Black women in this story, right? how would they have understood it differently? And so, for example, in the case of Black maternal mortality, we had been talking about how, how hard it is for women to get um, equitable health care. Uh, there had been a, a sort of a conversation about uh, the premature uh, uh, death and uh, survival rates of Black babies in the United States. Black babies um, have the mortality rate equivalent to, you know, non-Western uh, countries. And but nobody had really centered Black women in trying to figure out that all of that was part of the same thing. Um, and then in the instance of like uh, op-eds and talking about who gets to be an authority in our public discourse right. was about how is the, the quote unquote marketplace idea, marketplace of ideas structured in a way to reproduce the same ideas. You know, right. what's the invisible hand in the marketplace of ideas? And I thought, well, I thought I had a perspective on that precisely because I listen to and read and think about Black women. Um, so I, I took these things, but really the through line is, yeah, there's a way of thinking and a way of argument, argumentation that Black women have developed, and we have our own intellectual tradition. And if we applied it to these, these areas, um, 
uh, people are richer for it. More importantly, I wanted to center Black women to say we could be the audience. Right. We could be the subject, you know. Right. And it didn't have to be like plus. Also, this is inclusive of Black women, but That's this right. is for Black women, by Black women, about Black women. That's right. Just as it is for white men or sometimes white women or whoever. Um, just listening to you talk, something that's so interesting to me after having read your book is when I reviewed it, I talked about your turn of thinking, how you're writing and then you turn and all of a sudden as a reader, I'm like, oh my God, I didn't even know that's where we're going. And listening to you give that answer, I was like, oh, that's just who she is. <laughs> like, You're just smart. You you're just well, a smart person you. who I'm like, I'm like listening, being like, where is she going with this? And then being like, oh, how did I miss that? Um, but if you, you haven't read that. the book, you should read it just for the surprise of the turn. I don't know. That's what I call it. I don't know if there's a real word no, for it. That's amazing. My uh, friend, uh, Kiesi Lyman has said, you know, he calls it the boast, how I start out with the, you know, he's also very literary. And so he yeah. has a wonderful toolkit to describe such things. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, yeah, you know, you start with this boast and, you know, and you should also know kids and I talk to each other like family. You're like, yo, that shit, yo, that is amazing. <laughs> I was like, well, thanks, Key, first of all. Um, but I will say that in structuring the essay, I think that the element of surprise is one of the more powerful tools yeah. uh, that uh, marginalized and minoritized thinkers have. Um, it is, you know, I get a lot of reader mail from white men hmm. about this book, strangely enough. I just got one this morning and it always starts the same way. I just need you to know I'm not your typical reader. <laughs> I'm a white, you know, <laughs> 50 year old man in Minnesota. and But this book was amazing. It changed my life. And I do think that the, taking that reader on a journey where they don't know where they're going is one of the more effective ways to do it. When they think they know where it's going, they check out. Right. Do you think that white, straight, cis, male authors get letters from marginalized folks that start with, I'm not your typical reader? That's an amazing question. You know, I don't know. I would find it hard to believe as a person who's been a reader. Right. Because I read all um, sorts of things and I would yeah. never think to reach out to a white author and be like, I'm not your typical reader, right. but I read your book and I really liked it. Like that seems yeah. like such a weird way to, it's like, I, it's like a weird phrasing that separates, like, I don't want you to think that I'm going to go read another black woman's book. Exactly. But since I stumbled upon yours. Yeah. But since my daughter made me, you know, or something oh, like that. I do lots of that, that my wife or my daughter or whatever. Yeah. Just, you know, they wouldn't leave me alone until I read this. Yeah. No, it's really interesting because I do think the, the that reader is surprised that they found mm -hmm. something of value. They are as surprised that you can enjoy and learn from a piece of criticism or art. Um, without being at the center of it. It is, I think, for many readers, the first time it's ever happened to them, which is not anything, tr I think, tremendous about me. I just think it's about how limited we are in right. what we consume. But imagine that being true, that being able to be true for us as Black women, oh, yeah. that we would never have related to a piece of art or criticism that wasn't written by a Black women, by Black women. We would just be opening our first books in the last 10 years. Exactly. You, know? you certainly would not have read all through formal schooling. Right. You can't make it through the formal system of education <laughs> without doing it. Um, yeah, it never occurs to me to go, oh, wow, you know, um, you know, only because everyone's talking about Margaret Atwood's uh, new book. Uh, I'm thinking about that one today. Like, you know, we read The Handmaid's Tale and we read through it and around it. We are, first of all, I think, excellent at placing ourselves in a story and narrative in a way. I think that's why we're such great readers, by the right. way. Um, 
And yeah, and when you, it's one of the things that's uh, that is taken from the majority culture, their ability to become more nuanced, to become deeper thinkers, more complex thinkers, is as constrained by white supremacy as you know oppression constrains poor people's ability to do. Right. It. They just don't get to realize it as often. Right. Yeah. So coming from a background in academia and you have a PhD, which I am always so impressed by people who can do oh, that. Thank you. This you and two other people in the world left. Um, Prescott. So that's I amazing. think it's amazing. My sister-in-law, <laughs> she's about to get her PhD this year. And I, every day I'm like, how's it going? Like Aww. seeing how much work it takes and how, like how much reading and thinking and rewriting and all that. I think it's like a really it's an incredible honor. So I always like to shout out people who have it because you did a lot of work to get it. But in writing your first book, like you mentioned, it's much more, you know, it's nonfiction in a much Mm -hmm. more academic way. How was it different for you sharing this book, Thick, that is a much more intimate and emotional and it has a lot more of you, Tressy, in it? So uncomfortable. It was so (laughs) uncomfortable. I I kept saying, why am I doing this? It, um, so what the academic distance gives you is, which is why we covet it so much. Right. And I think why our culture reproduces the idea of that sort of Western rationality is because it is a defense. It is a defense mechanism against a type of criticism. Uh, it can be used as a defense against uh, the sort of reflexivity that can bring about cognitive dissonance. It just makes us uncomfortable with ourselves. You cannot run and hide when you put yourself in the text. And um, and if you try to do so, the reader can call you out on it better. Right. The reader knows when you start lying and when mm-hmm. you start hedging the truth, when you've put yourself into the text in a certain way. And we often use, academics, I'll say, often use data, et cetera, to build in that distance. And one of the things I wanted to do in this book was collapse it. I wanted to say, like, what happens if we reanimate, like, all of these data points we know about? We know about wealth inequality. We know that white women on black women have five dollars in average savings and wealth because of wealth extraction. We know that uh, black women's life expectancies are undermined by poverty and sexism. We know, like, we know these things. We know right. there are no black women out there, right? Right on the masthead of major uh, publications. But what happens when we take those data points and we reanimate? We give them back their humanity. And that's what telling the story was. Um, So I loved intellectually and creatively, I loved the challenge of writing them emotionally and personally. (laughs) It was brutal. Oh my, I bet, I bet. I mean, I'd spent all this time developing that armor. Right. And no one was forcing me to take it off. I was doing it to myself. So I couldn't even like complain to someone. Um, And I had signed up to do it and, I couldn't be sure that it would pay off, that it would be worth it. It right. was very uncomfortable. I bet. Does, did it change the way that you now write other things moving forward? Like, do you think that you're a different writer because you've kind of yeah. gotten vulnerable That's in that way? Too. I think so. I was clearly on the journey there. Right. Right. I, and, uh, you know, I've been writing a lot of public essays um, between the first book and that book and, that certainly centered me more as a, um, you know, as a character sort of mm-hmm. uh, in my intellectual arguments. Um, so I've clearly been getting there. I will say that what happened 
in writing this book is I became more comfortable with the fact that this is my voice. Mm. I did start to own it. There was, you know, there's always a point in finishing a book. Um, You turn it over to someone, you work, work, work on this thing. It's such a weird process. Then you turn it over to someone and like, they don't talk to you for like a month, you know, because they're (laughs) off doing whatever their thing is. And in that, that time between submitting it and when they come back to you for like the process of making a book, you have a lot of time to just sort of like sit in it. Mm. Uh, and I remember thinking, I wrote this exactly the way I wanted to. I, and it was exactly, you know, flaws and all. It was what I had wanted to produce. And there was a certain amount of confidence that came with that voice in writing the process. Um, I like the fact that if I ever wanted to, I know I can write right. in the academic style, but I admit that there is a certain maturity in my thinking that has made me more comfortable with saying I can do it, but choose not to. Right. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So do you think moving forward, you're going to continue writing in this way? Or do you think you will still kind of go back to that academic? Did my editor put you up to asking about this? No. Are you you working for the other side? I'm not a spy. (laughs) 
No, this Though is- I would like to thank the people at the New Press for sending me a copy of this book. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. That's what, that was a nice move there. Um, uh, yes, I mean, this is me. One of the things that I have always wanted is something that I think all Black women wanted, want, which is I have always craved the freedom to choose my life, mm. to choose my life. I wanted, I didn't know how to do it. I remember being young and I would walk through like really wealthy neighborhoods and, you know, Rich people often don't put window treatments up to their window so you can peer right into their homes. You know, they'd be in there making dinner or sitting down or something. And I wondered, how had they chosen to construct a life that looked the way that theirs did? And I think a lot of Black women want that. We want the freedom to self-actualize in our own way. And it is so hard for us to get that freedom. And I feel like I am at a place in my life where I can choose that. I can choose how to construct my life. I can choose how I want to write and what I want to write about. And honestly, I feel like it would be disrespectful to the many Black women who had to come before me to give me this moment, to the Black women who I think are looking at me in this moment, uh, to the sacrifices that have been made, if I chose to do anything less. Mm. Um, and that's, that is very real. I've thought about it a great deal. I mean, I can't imagine sitting down, for example, and telling my grandma that I decided to give up this moment and to do something else because... I was afraid or I wanted someone's approval or something. I can write this way. So I, I feel obligated to do so. So, yeah, I think this is me. That's a long way of saying, yeah, I think this is me. This is probably happening again. Well, as a Black woman who's read your work, thank you. And I'm glad because you're, it's great. Like it was, it was a really thrilling reading experience for me. And I don't know that essay collections, well, some can be, but oftentimes I feel like they're, they're not. Sometimes I feel like essay collections can be like hit or miss. And I felt like your book just kept growing and like learning about you and seeing the world in your way. I was like, oh, I can't wait to use this in an argument. <laughs> Thank you. And I love ar- I love arming people because so many right? writers have armed me. Right. And I love hearing that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to shift a little bit kind of to your process as a writer, which my first question there is, did you always want to be a writer? Or when you kind of got into academia, were you thinking, I'm going to be a researcher or I want to be a professor? I know that you are a professor or assistant professor, but what was associate. your... Oh, associate. Excuse That's me. Right. Sorry. <laughs> I'll cut that out. That's right. You got to tell the people. No, go ahead. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't think I knew that writing was something you could do for a job. Okay. And so I understood writing as something you did, not an identity. Mm. And so I've written my whole life. I'm like, you know, I mean, it's the most common story you hear of anyone who eventually ends up publishing something. They tell you about how they've been writing stories since they were five and whatever. But it's true. I mean, (laughs) I have always written. I have always read. I was a huge reader. I come from a family of big readers. Um, But I also come from Southern people, um, Southern Black people from a very particular history for whom writing was not a job. A job was a place you went to Mm. and people paid you. Um, And so it was not until... uh, Well, I mean, I think I was in graduate school and it became clear to me that one writer could be a professional identity. Hmm. Um, And there were suddenly these pressures, you know, kind of tugging at me to try to make me sort of choose between that and academic work. Um, And a lot of my career has been about trying to resist those uh, that divide that what I think is a false distinction uh, between the two. There's certainly, you know, some real constraints to doing both. Um, But I think the moment when I said, you know, no matter what happens to me professionally, 
I will always be a writer. Mm. Um, it was, I'd finished the first book. It had left my hands and I started saying things like, well, in my next book, I'm going to consider this. In my mm. next book, I'm going to do that. And I thought, oh, that's who I am now. I, I write things. Oh, I'm a right. Oh, oh, okay. I get it. Um, and that none of that was tied to the other thing that I could be that no matter what. That's right. actually a relatively recent development. And pretty powerful. Yes. You can have a totally separate identity from this other thing that was such a big part or is such a big part of your identity. I think it keeps me sane. Frankly, yeah. there is so much for as competitive um, and the culture is in professional writing, the academic culture is as well. Uh, but because the two professions draw on different types of credibility um, and a reward system, when things aren't going well in my academic career or they aren't going as I want them to go, right? I have this other thing. I have something else to which I can tether my identity. So I just, I don't feel like I'm working at the, um, you know, at the favors of the academic profession. Right. And, the, and that's very comforting for me. Yeah, I bet. What in your, when you're writing, how are you writing? Where are you writing? Are you, do you have snacks? Do you have beverages? Do you oh, light a candle? Uh, yeah. do you kind of set the scene for us. What's your ideal uh, writing setup? Oh, that's a wonderful question. Because one <laughs> of the things I've been doing the last year is uh, decorating my house. And uh, when I sat down and, you know, I had this decorator and she was like, okay, tell me how you live. I was like, I don't know. I've been in grad school, right? I mean, I, I live under a pile of like dirty clothes. What do you mean? It's just like, you know, take me through your day. Uh, and it really took me quite a while to figure it out. But we, I have, I think, you know, finally sort of created that space. And a lot of it came from habits that developed as I was uh, writing my dissertation and later my book, which is, yes, I recently discovered I prefer writing at a table as opposed to a desk. Okay. Don't know what it is about a desk, but it just, I, I mean, I can do it, but I just love. So what I have now in my writing studio at home is a round table. Um, I feel like uh, because I, I get up and down a lot when I'm writing, I'm kind of kinetic. And so as I get up, as I jump up and down, um, having that space to move around the table in the room is really important to me. And a round table gives me more of that. Um, the chair has to be super comfortable and low to the ground because I am short. <laughs> if I am in the slightest bit physically uncomfortable, uh, I find it difficult to get into the mental space. And so, I mean, everything on me has to be soft, soft pants, soft socks, soft t-shirt. You know, <laughs> I just have a physical way of being when I'm writing. Um, I actually don't like a ton of light. I write by like a dim light, which is also oh. probably why my eyesight has gone. <laughs> the trade off. <laughs> I know. I know. My uh, op um, optometrist told me, he's like, you really got to work on that. I was like, eh, you know, <laughs> it's a small sacrifice for productivity. Yeah. yeah I sort of write in a cave. You know, I have like a cave-like environment. And, Do you have um, any beverages or snacks? Okay. So there is a my ideal. I have to have what I call each of the important groups, hot, cold, sweet, salty. Okay. Within arm's reach at all times. So that means hot coffee and or tea, although I'm going to be real with you, it's got to be coffee. Okay. I will substitute hot chocolate. Ooh. If it's in a pinch and I don't want too much more caffeine. Um, cold water, bottle of water. And if I'm being really fancy, I want both flat and sparkling. Okay. All right. I love that. Then I have to have sweet, and my preferred sweet are 
either gummy bears okay. or gummy worms in a pinch. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, it's very different. Or Twizzlers will do. Okay. Uh, and then my salty, uh, the only the only acceptable thing for salty is a potato chip. Right. All right. Uh, and so I line all of those things up, and uh, that way I don't have any excuses. Yes. Whatever I'm craving at any moment is right there at my... This you know. is one of the tips I give people who want to read more. Mm-hmm. I always say, go to the bathroom, have your little place, have your blankie, have your beverage, have everything you need there. So once you sit down... And then I say, put your phone on airplane mode. That's it. Because then you have everything. You have no I excuse. Don't know people do it any other way. Yeah. I, it, sometimes I end up doing it, but I get distracted and I get annoyed. But my best reading is like in my spot with my things, yep. airplane mode. What sort of stuff were you reading while you were writing, Nick? By the time I start writing, I have to actually stop reading okay. um, because I need to only hear my voice okay. in my mind. But beforehand, when I'm preparing, um, I did read a lot of essay collections, but I think um, some unexpected ones. I wanted to focus on the on the form, the genre, mm-hmm. more than I did the content. Uh, so, like, I didn't read the ones that had done really well, the, the, like the, the couple of years previous to my book. Um and, you know, we're in a real moment, too, with like memoir and memoir-esque um, uh, essays. Yeah. But I didn't want to because I didn't, again, didn't want those at the forefront of my mind. And I really wanted to focus on what constituted an essay. How, how was it bracketed? How did different writers approach it um, as a way to encapsulate a thought or a feeling or an emotion? Um, so one of the ways I do that, I did that, was to read across different genres. So, like, I read a lot of comedy uh, mm. Uh, essays, essayist. Um, I the old ones too, like uh, what Irma Bombeck. I read. I read a lot of sports ones. Uh, Dave Zirin and some other people. Oh, I love him. I, I I love him. A good sport. What I have decided is that a good sports essay is probably the height of the genre. And I'm not killing. I'm not kidding. So good. They are freaking amazing. When a sports writer can write right. And they have all of that generative rich material from sports culture, which is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I don't even really follow sports like that, but I read sports writers and Dave is one of my regulars. Yeah, He's amazing. His book, Welcome to the Terror Dome, was my introduction to him in college. Yeah. And I ended up writing a whole paper about one of the essays. Like I mm-hmm. used that and like I went and did my own research, but I love him. Yeah. And when Twitter first was like getting hot, I he tweeted at me. I tweeted yeah. at him and he tweeted back and I saved the tweet. It's in my scrapbook. <laughs> Oh, you are a real wood. I love him. I just love him. I think he's so smart. Um, I agree. He's really great. I think great. His, what he does with the essay with the arc of um, the emotional buildup. Yeah. And the thing about sports uh, essays that I like and that I like about Dave is that sports is a data-driven uh, culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So much like being an academic trained in like data, they have to contend with these numbers. Right. So they have to an emotionally evocative story, but they can't fudge the numbers. Right. Right. The person either has the most hits ever or not. Or not. Right. right. You have to make a good story regardless of that data point. Yeah. And I I thought that was a really instructive for me where I had to deal with like it or not, for example, like this is the statistic about wealth and equality. But now how can I make that interesting? How can I say something about that that has that is unexpected? And that's what I think the sports writing thing gave me. That's so interesting. I also love sports writing, but I love sports. So I always thought it was because of that, but it might be. I am. 
I'm such a passive. I mean, I'll watch it, you know, but right. I'm like, I'm one of the sports fans that people hate. I show up uh. and play off. Like, <laughs> I who's playing for us this year. So I'm totally not a sports nerd, but I love sports writing. That's so interesting. I, that's, that's fascinating to me. Oh, I know. This is so important. For people who love your book, what sort of where what direction would you point them in for more reading? It doesn't have to be the same topic or even it could just be kind of things that you feel like maybe are in conversation with your work or I don't know. I'll let you go from there. <laughs> I, think, uh, I think Rebecca Traster is a, a, a feminist mm. writer, also a good essayist in her own right and just a really sharp thinker. Um, I think that if you like the construction of thick, like how I try to tie narrative with like uh, data and analysis, uh, Rebecca Tracer is a really good one. Um, Rebecca Solnit, who I also read quite a bit of when I was uh, thinking about, about this collection, does some really interesting things with the voice in her yeah. essays that I think is fun. Um, the book is often paired uh, with Chiesa's and I could not recommend it enough. <sighs> I tried to give every man in my life that book. So incredible. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. I mean, any of them. I mean, Long Division is wonderful too, but there, um, there is something, what's the name of his most recent one? I just Heavy. Like, heavy. Yeah. There's something about Heavy that I think, I just, again, I try to get every, especially every black man in my life to read it. Yeah. It's so amazing. There's a book coming out in October. I, I talk about it a lot on the podcast, so listeners are probably rolling their eyes, but it's by Saeed Jones. Yes. Oh, yes. Saeed's book is going to be amazing. Yes. I, I read it and it's so amazing. And I I think that that book is also very much in conversation with what you do and with what Kiese Kiese's well, thank book. Thank you for that. If I had to maybe put together that dinner party, I would be very pleased. <laughs> yeah, um, and I would like an invite, please. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and I will be there. You're welcome. I, I I bake. I'm available whenever oh, I can be yes, in Virginia. With that information, yes, I with the yes, baking. I'm a big That's baker. So yes, it's very important. I bring I bring more to the table. Uh, <laughs> I do want to touch this. We kind of started here when we talked about, you know, these white men sending you emails saying, I don't normally read this, but what sort of pushback or surprises have you received from Thick? Because it's been in the world now long enough and you're, not only are you an author and an academic, but you're also like a Twitter personality and you have this podcast. So you're kind of more than one thing. You're kind of like a, you're just dressy, you know, like no subtitle needed. But okay. that makes you a target, right? Like yeah. for or people yeah. feel like they can respond to you or react to your work in a way that maybe they wouldn't if you were just one of right. those things. So what sort of surprise feedback or pushback have you received from the book? And if any of it felt relevant to you or actually constructive in any way? Um, the, the, the stuff that makes me, you know, that puts me all in my emotions is I get... Um, and by young, these days when I say young, I mean anybody younger than like 40. Okay. Uh, you know, the number, the threshold for young in my world keeps going up. But like <laughs> young black women who um, who are actually less likely to email me because we respect each other so much. Mm-hmm. Black women, you know, we see each other and they see my work. They know I have five jobs, right? right. And they tend to be the, the ones least likely then to reach out to me. Mm-hmm. But I'll do a book talk or something like that and, you know, and have some direct engagement. And they tell me things like, yeah, you know, you told me I wasn't crazy. Hmm. I didn't think I wasn't. And I've started to even say, that's my brand, to just go around telling Black women you're not crazy. That thing that you thought was happening is happening. 
you're not imagining it. That if I could just even push back on like the chronic gaslighting of Black women, I would be so happy. Um, but it's been a surprise to me about how they approach me with it. Like um, the places they tell me they took the book to, to explain to people in their lives mm. who they were has been really stunning. I've been surprised by how quickly the book was taken up in like classrooms. Oh, wow. Uh, lots of people teaching it. And I didn't think of it as that kind of work at all. And so mm. that's really fascinating. I think the white men are darling and stunning. Yes, they come up to me with a little thing. Um, uh, the ones that uh, surprised me, I think, more negatively are, you know, they're they're typical at this point. So I, they don't even really register with me. And those usually fall along the lines of someone who hasn't read it at all. And it's just something like, oh, there you go talking about Black, bleed Black women again. What, you, you, uh, you think Black women can't make mistakes? I get that from some version of a, you know... Sure. Troll online all the time. <laughs> um, uh, what the what the folks on Twitter might call a hotep response, which is, right. oh, you're talking about Black women, but not talking about Black men because it happens to us too. And I'm always like, I'm so happy for you. Here are 15 books about you right. that you could go read. But I refuse to apologize for talking only about Black women. Does it suggest that reading about us, it needs to be some exceptional case? And right. I just don't believe that. Um I'm always surprised by um, the types of celebrities that kind of interact in that world now a little, just, you know, just a smidge. As you, you know, you mentioned my <laughs> podcast, Roxanne, and all of that. Um, how many of the, like, the celebrity guests that come on our show and like they want to talk about our books? Yeah. Like, well, you, you guys know, are amazing. Like, yeah, I read something. Gabrielle Union was amazing. <sighs> she was one of the first people actually to read it. Um, and she, one of our first guests on the show, too. And listen, she came in like, yep, let's talk about it. Like she wanted book club. Like Gabrielle yeah. came to talk about like real stuff. It's stunning to me when it strips away all of the artifice mm-hmm. that the, you know, the book has done. So like the celebrity thing gets stripped away. The power stuff gets stripped away. And people just really want to talk. And that's been kind of uh, interesting. I love that. Okay. I just have one more question for you and then we're done, unfortunately for me, but I'll let you go. Um, if you could have one person read this book, dead or alive, who do you, who would you want? This is tough because there are two and they're very different parts of myself. You can say two. I'll allow it. Thank you. <laughs> um, she could have hated it and I wouldn't have cared. I just would have loved if Toni Morrison could have seen it mm. and known that um, one of the essays in the book is about, you know, capitalism and beauty and et cetera. And the entire time that I was working on it, there's no way I, my thinking would have been what it was had I not been the 11 year old girl, girl who read the blue aside. That essay is just one long conversation with the blue mm. aside. A black woman just trying to figure all of that out. Um, and then uh, my great grandmother name is Eunice. And, um, you know, I'm one of the tall people in my family, <laughs> a, a towering five foot three inches. And, <laughs> It was barely 4'11", was shrinking the whole time. And I would stand over here. We had a, you know, we had this joke we'd do. And I'd stand over here and I'd wag my finger at her and tell her she better listen to me because I was bigger than her. <laughs> and she'd turn her finger back up to me and say, you know what, Missy, just because you can talk good doesn't mean you're in charge of everybody. And that's what she called me, that little girl. She sure can talk. She said, mm. I love hearing that little girl talk. I wish my, uh, my great-grandmother uh, and my grandmother, for that matter, had lived to see it. If only because, God, the journey I'd taken from where they started, Mm -hmm. I think just would have, I think it just would have overwhelmed them. 
in the best ways possible. And I wish I'd been able to give them that before they died. It's really beautiful. Um, Well, I think I can speak for myself and future generations. You've given us the book, so we're lucky to have it for for sure. Um, Tressie, thank you so much for being here. I'm going to link to your book and your social media and all of that in the show notes so people you can find Tressie and both of her books. Um, But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so very much. I've got to say, this has been one of the most enjoyable conversations I've had Uh, on book tour. So rarely does anyone ask me about craft or writing process, which is true for, I think, a lot of Black women uh, writers and thinkers. So thank you for that. It was a blast. You're welcome. Thank you. And we will see you guys in the stack. Thank you so much for listening to The Short Stacks and thank you to Tressie McMillan Cottom for being our guest. I also would like to thank Lauren Garcia and the folks over at The New Press for setting up this interview. Everything we talked about on today's episode can be found in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out the website, thestackspodcast.com. To join the Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show and more, go to patreon.com slash the Stacks. Make sure you're subscribed to this show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please rate and review this show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This show was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas, and I will see you in the Stacks. <laughs>